All right, these military guys just came in and told me that all decisions regarding Hostel 17 are to be left in my hands. So I'm having them delivered to my house. Hi, and welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer vlog and podcast. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media, and we are here today to talk about The Killer in Me, the 13th episode of Season 7. The Killer in Me aired on February 4th, 2003, and was written by Drew Z. Greenberg with Rebecca Rand Kirshner as executive story editor and Drew Z. Greenberg as story editor. This episode was directed by David Solomon. This is Solomon's penultimate directorial episode for Buffy. The first episode he directed was What's My Line, Part 1, all the way back from Season 2. The Killer in Me has some fun moments and some touching moments, but overall, it's not a strong episode. We have three stories here that pull away from each other, and one of them isn't even really a story. It's a comedic misunderstanding that doesn't pay off as nicely as the setup might have allowed. Overall, this episode has highs and lows, but the highs aren't that high. All right, let's get into the weeds. In The Killer in Me, Giles takes the potential slayers on a trip to the mountains where... Then apparently someone told them that the vision quest consists of me driving them to the desert, doing the hokey pokey, until a spooky Rastamala slayer arrives and speaks to them in riddles. While the girls are gone, Kennedy admits to lying to get out of the camping trip, and then lies again to get Willow to go to the bronze with her. We're not on a mission, are we? Meanwhile, Spike's chip starts going off for no apparent reason. And Buffy makes a call for help. <sighs> Wrong number. Or a giant government conspiracy. One of the... Spike? When they get back home, Willow and Kennedy kiss. And Willow turns into Warren, which confuses everyone. And Willow has to prove she's actually Willow. There are other stories from kindergarten. Non-yellow crayon stories in which you don't come out in such a good light. An incident involving Aquaman Underoos, for example? You want me to start talking? Hey, Willow! Willow and Kennedy hit the street to figure out what's going on, and they come across the campus Wicca group, where Amy is going through her 12 steps. But as Warren starts to take over, Willow leaves, and Kennedy discovers that Amy's contrition is not genuine. What did you do to her? What, to Willow? Oh, just your standard penance malediction is all. Meanwhile, a call comes in from England, detailing Giles' recent encounter with a bringer's axe. And the uncertainty about his fate leads to some theories. Look, I'm not saying it's a happy scenario, but we're dealing with a big bad that can be any dead person it wants. Buffy and Spike head into the old initiative stomping grounds to find some drugs that might help the pain from the chip. And the military version of a welcome wagon crashes the party. All decisions regarding Hostile 17 are to be left in your hands. The remaining Scoobies head out to find Giles in the mountains, and they tackle him to be sure he's not the first. We all feel each other, including... Some of us who don't know each other well enough to take such liberties, thank you. Back at Buffy's house, Willow reenacts the day that Warren killed Tara, saying that she killed Tara by letting her be dead. And Kennedy breaks the spell with a kiss, bringing Willow back. It's just like fairy tales. What are you doing? Bringing you back to life. with Willow and Kennedy as a couple are vast. They have nothing in common aside from liking girls, and Kennedy's predatory pursuit of Willow from the first moment she walked into the house has been disturbing. There has been no sense of them working well together as a team, the way we had with Willow and Tara from the very first moment in Hush. 
nothing about Kennedy that makes her seem like the kind of person Willa would like, or anybody would like. Aside from being beautiful and capable in a fight, there isn't much about Kennedy that makes her a compelling character. And if anything, she's aggressively off-putting. She has some strengths. Her weaknesses are that she's predatory, spoiled, and inconsiderate. But she has no vulnerabilities, nothing that makes her seem human or relatable. That's bad in any character. But for a character that we're trying to force together with one of our most beloved Scoobies? Hell no. And as if all that wasn't bad enough, we then... Get this. I'm not so into the magic stuff. Seems like fairy tale crap to me, but if it matters to you, you care about it. So it's cool. The fact that Kennedy calls magic fairy tale crap is offensive, especially given everything that Willow's been through with magic, her successes and failures. And if you're going to believe that you're a potential slayer, you need to make room in your life for a little bit of magic, honey. Then we move into a deeper story with Willow as she turns into Warren after kissing Kennedy. While much of the story is played for laughs, Hey, bad touching! It then gets weird as Amy gets involved. No one cares about how hard you work. They just care about cute, sweet Willow. They don't know how weak she is. She gave in to evil and stuff worse than I can even imagine. She almost destroyed the world. And yet everyone keeps on loving her? We finally get to the good stuff with Kennedy and Willow in the backyard, as Willow relives the moment Warren killed Tara. And we get the connection between this moment and the kiss with Kennedy. She was never gone. She was with me. We should have been forever. And I... I let her be dead. The stuff with Amy doesn't really make any sense. I mean, what does Amy get out of messing with Willow? She's mad because Willow almost destroyed the world and still gets to keep her friends? What does any of that have to do with Amy? She never liked any of these people anyway. It has nothing to do with Amy. It's just fun having Elizabeth Ann Allen back. And I like her as much as the next Buffy fan. Maybe even a little bit more. But it doesn't make sense. She's faking being with that Wiccan group, a group that seems to know her and trust her and still spends its time making an empowering lemon bunt. Also, she has a handy alibi when Willow comes calling. But how could she know Willow would come looking for the group on that night at that time? Look, I can poke holes in this all day. It's not worth it. It just doesn't make any sense. Nor does this idea of Warren taking over Willow's existence. If it's just a glamour brought on by guilt, why would the personality of a man long dead be taking over? That's not a penance malediction. That's just adding additional pressure to the situation, which is a good narrative instinct. But this is an internal conflict for Willow, and it doesn't make sense in this context. Nor does this story need that kind of pressure. Willow is living in the body of the man she killed, the man who killed Tara. That in itself is a big deal. And Willow's response to that is what I want to explore. To have her lose control of herself pulls her away from that essential internal conflict, which could have been so lovely. Why do we not instead watch her work through her problem with magic only to fail? Have her think that it's about guilt over Warren's death rather than guilt over letting Tara go? Then Kennedy's fairy tale kiss at the end as she realizes it's not a magical problem, but a psychological one, has more power and makes Kennedy a better character, which is something we desperately need because obviously they are intent on getting these two together. 
So there's good stuff happening in this part of the story, but most of it is muddied and nonsensical, forcing a relationship that in every way is just wrong and making it worse by intercutting with Buffy and Spike, a relationship that outshines this one by a country mile. You've been fine in close contact with the girls. Yeah, with you by my side, yeah. But, uh, you wouldn't let me hurt one of them. And that's the way it's going to be until we're sure the first is done making me its bitch. Either we're together or I'm on the leash. Now, granted, Buffy and Spike have had a lot more time to develop their relationship than Willow and Kennedy have. But even from the first moment they worked together back in season two, we see that they are better matched even as mortal enemies than Kennedy and Willow are as two people on the same side. Buffy, terrible things have happened. What were you doing? What, your mom doesn't know? Know what? That I'm uh, in a band, a, a rock band with Spike here. Right, she plays the, the triangle. Drums. Drums, yeah, she's a, a hell on the old skins. Yeah. Again, if you want to make a romance work, give us two people who work well together as a team. We see that same teamwork here, although admittedly, in this work, Buffy's leading the way and Spike is following between bouts of debilitating pain. But that is still teamwork. Spike trusts Buffy. He follows where she leads. He's not afraid of or intimidated by her strength. He never has been, which is part of the reason why he's such a great romantic partner for her. He's not insecure about who he is, so he doesn't need her to be less to make him feel like more. Which is a nice contrast to Riley, who always needed that, and whose oblique presence here sends that message home with power. The Buffy and Spike story in this episode is unfinished. We don't find out what Buffy decided to do about Spike's chip. The last thing we see is the initiative guys handing the decision over to her, although we don't see what her decision ultimately is. Had we removed Amy from Willow's story and given more space to Buffy and Spike, this would have balanced out nicely, and we could have ended this story with Buffy having to make a difficult decision. But at least there's a story here, even if it's unfinished. That's better than the misleading runaround we get with Giles. Has anyone seen Giles touch anything since he got back? Hold anything? Has anybody hugged him? Think very hard. I spoke briefly of the Giles mislead this season when I complained about the cliffhanger we had in Sleeper, where we cut to black just as the bringer's axe was about to get up close and personal with Giles' neck. And here we're seeing the payoff. I mentioned in that episode of Still Pretty that the mislead was well done, which it is for what it is, and that we didn't need the cliffhanger to pull it off, which I would still argue we don't. But now that we're here, my memory of this mislead is much better than the reality of what is actually done with it. Here's what I think has been good about it. They were very careful not to have Giles physically interact with anything since his return to Sunnydale. We get the almost hug with Buffy that's interrupted by the influx of slayers and bring on the night. It's the girls who have the books he brought with them, and they hand them over while Giles just watches. In this episode, we even have this. Giles, you might want to get out there. Oh, God, what? Molly and Rona are fighting over who gets to drive the first leg. Bet you'd wish you renewed that California state driver's license now, huh? And it's all nicely done for what it is, although if you think about it even a little bit, you realize it couldn't have been the case. Giles traveled from England with at least Molly in tow, as she is from England too. In order for Giles to get into the car to go to the mountains, someone would have had to open the door and close it for him. Plus, that's a lot of people in a small car, and Giles isn't driving, so someone was shoved up next to him in the car. Even a few minutes of thinking about it, you'd realize it's just not possible. But in the end, it's a lot of thin nonsense, 
Also, we can get to this joke. Now, wait a minute. You, thought, you think I'm evil if I bring a group of girls on a camping trip and don't touch them? Which isn't even a Giles line. That is a Xander line. Giles would not say that. But it's funny, so in the script it goes, and all this buildup that Giles might be the first ends up doing nothing. You can tell if a storyline is ineffectual if you can pull it out and it has no effect on the larger story. This suspicion that Giles might be the first fits into that category. All that work, all that subtle laying of doubt throughout the season, so masterfully done, and in the end, it has no effect on the story at large. Now, if, say, the bringers were on Giles' tail in the mountains and about to kill him again, but because the Scoobies rushed out there, they were able to save Giles and get something off the bringer that would give them a clue to the first, boom, this whole thing has a purpose. But none of that happened. You can cut this whole thing out and you lose nothing aside from a brief gasp until you really think about it and a little chuckle at the touching girls line, which is decidedly less funny in 2018 than it was in 2003 as we're becoming much more conscious of just how common predators are in our world. But that's another discussion altogether. Bottom line, the mislead is nicely done, but it's just spinning wheels, killing time until our story really gets moving, which I believe starts to happen in the next episode. All right, that's it for today. This episode of Still Pretty was brought to you by Chipperish Media producer Jonathan Williams. Jonathan supports Chipperish Media at the power producer level and as a reward gets to produce whatever show he wants. Thank you, Jonathan, and thank you to everyone who supports Chipperish Media and makes all this possible. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you too can become a Still Pretty producer. I'll see you next time with my thoughts on season seven, episode 14, first date. Until then... Stay pretty. Still Pretty is a chipperish media production and is entirely patron-supported. To find out how you can keep us in production, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. <laughs>